0: We're listening to Sean of the South, and I'm your host today, Sean Dietrich. Coming to you live via the podcast, dear waves and radio waves all over this fine nation. This episode brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition of my family, dating back to my granddaddy, who once said the best cure for idle hands was to build something. So keep your hands sharp with a Case Knife and by Folklore Brewing and Meadery, quite literally the best brew in Alabama. Visit brewing And while you're at it, why don't you visit Midnight Shift Coffee? Dot com the official coffee of the Pensacola Police Department. A buck from every bag goes to support the Rally Foundation, which helps to fight childhood cancer. Midnight shift coffee. Well, I'm just gonna read you a few of my essays because uh, I, I keep getting emails—way more emails than I ever thought—asking um, me to read essays. So I don't. I guess there's no uh, there's no use wasting time here. I'll just get started. It was 135 years ago, today. 135 years ago. The ships from France arrived in upper New York Bay, carrying 214 wooden crates and 350 monstrous individual pieces of iron, steel, and copper. And everyone was talking about it, from Mark Twain to Thomas Edison. Now, the first guy to propose a statue was Edouard de Labouillet, a French anti-slavery activist. His idea was was that the Civil War was over, and it was the perfect time to honor American freedom. Artist Frédéric Aguste Bartholdi was immediately excited about the idea. He agreed to design it, and he asked for help from his friend, Alexander Gustave Eiffel, the same man responsible for the Eiffel Tower. Now, Bartholdi and Eiffel got together one night, and they probably had a few beers, and they brainstormed about a statue Bartoldi had been thinking about for many years. At least it seemed like Beer was involved because they ended up designing a 450,000-pound structure that would be gilded in pure gold with a mind-blowing framework of iron pylons and support beams that would double as a lighthouse. Complicated to say the least. It would take years of work to get off the ground. For one thing, Before they got started, they had to get some actual Americans on board, which wasn't easy because Americans were about as interested in public artwork as they were in fight-free mayonnaise. So Bertoldi had to promote the tar out of this thing. He had to do a lot of footwork. He proposed building it in the New York area, and then he did a lot of public relations footwork in the U.S., like demonstrating the statue's torch at the 1876 World's Fair in Philadelphia. And even though a lot of people thought it was sure enough a neat idea, most Americans were still leaning toward a fight free mail until Boston said in eighteen eighty two that they wanted the statue built in their harbor. You got to watch out for Boston. Well, this changed everything up until that moment. New York hadn't been too concerned with the statue. But now that Bean Town was in the picture, well, it was a different ball game. Even the New York Times got hacked off when they heard that Boston was trying to horn in on their statue. They published a statement that went like this, as a direct quote: "That great lighthouse statue will be smashed into fragments before it shall be stuck up in the Boston Harbor." End quote. And that got the ball rolling. But enough about that. Let's get back to the money thing I was telling you about. The French government didn't really care for the idea of the statue because, for starters, they were the French government. But the working-class French citizens felt very differently about this. They took miners into their own hands. And here's where the story gets interesting. The French hamlets and rural townships loved the idea of an American statue so much that they started funding it. Themselves, that's right. Donations came in from remote regions of France by the boatload. Nearly 180 villages sent in tens of thousands of francs. Schoolchildren mailed in their pocket change. Elderly Frenchmen who still remembered when their fathers fought in the American Revolution were sending in donations. After a lot of fundraising, Bartoldi had enough money, and construction began. Step one was to build a statue in France. Step two was to disassemble the Colossus, then ship it to America. And anyone who's ever assembled IKEA furniture with one's wife knows that A, this was a major undertaking, and B, IKEA furniture is the leading cause of divorce in this country. But there were more problems on the horizon, namely the issue of the statue's pedestal. Now, you probably didn't think about it, but you just don't build a 111-foot statue in your backyard and put it next to your above-ground pool. No, no, no. You need a foundation, and foundations cost big time. So America tried to raise the money for the pedestal with the fundraising projects that it had in its mind, but not much happened. Because, let's face it, Americans enjoy sitting on their proverbial thumbs when it comes to fundraising. So Joseph Pulitzer the newspaper publisher, famous newspaper publisher, got involved. Now, he was very jazzed up about this statue, and he announced to his readers that he would print anyone's name who donated to the statue, even if that person only donated one penny. One penny, you get your name in the paper. Well, that was all it took. Millions of cash donations came flooding in from all over country, the best part is they came from mostly average Americans in little towns across the U.S. Children all over were raiding their piggy banks and sending in their nickels to New York. A kindergarten class in Iowa sent a dollar thirty-five in. A rural school in Kansas sent in two bucks. A young German woman sent in an envelope containing eight pennies. In sixth Months. The newspapers raised one hundred and two thousand dollars, which doesn't sound like much by today's standards, although I wouldn't mind having one hundred and two thousand dollars. It was about two point seven million in today's dollars. After it was built, Dedication Parade in Manhattan was ridiculous. There were brass bands, reporters, magnates, barkeepers, mill workers, baseball players, homeless children, street sweeps, housewives, mothers, babies, immigrants, priests, landlords, and politicians. The parade route went from midtown Manhattan past Fifth Avenue and Broadway, and the crowds grew bigger with each city block. People were rushing out of storefronts and taverns just to join the fanfare. And when the procession passed, the New York Stock Exchange, they say traders got so excited that they began throwing ticker tape from the windows until it looked like it was snowing. And this became known as history's first ticker tape parade, which became a tradition in New York City. Throngs huddled around the upper New York Bay, waiting for the ceremony to begin, presided over by Grover Cleveland, the president The colossal statue's face was covered in a giant flag, and when the statue was unveiled, the roar of a crowd almost ruptured the pedestal. A pedestal, which bore a sonnet inscribed on a bronze plaque, which read, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. In the statue's lifetime, over twelve million hopeful immigrants would look upon her when entering this gloriously imperfect nation, She stood proud, tarnished from corrosion and salt air, and greeted my ancestors when their boat came into the New York harbor. Maybe she greeted your ancestors, too. One Greek immigrant recalls, standing on the main deck of a steamship, seeing liberty for the first time, the statue stood in the distance like a copper myth, giant and blanketed in the morning fog. The young immigrant's English was broken, but his eyes were soaked when he said, "'I saw the Statue of Liberty, and I say unto myself, "'Lady, you are such a beautiful. "'Give me a chance to prove that I am worth it, "'to do a something, to be a someone in America.' "'May all God's children have that very same chance.' Nevada named Ellen, who writes. Sean, your writing used to be funny, but in the last few months it seems more reflective and almost sad. Sean, I've come to depend on your stuff to make me laugh, but lately you hadn't been doing your job. I guess I'm just wondering if you'll ever go back to being funny again. Well, Ellen, I'll be the first to admit it has been tough finding humor in daily life since the pandemic hit. I hope I hadn't been too much of a buzzkill for you. I'm sorry if I have. Humor's one of those things that just feels off when it's used at the wrong time. And I find that sometimes gags which are hysterical one day can feel very impolite under the wrong circumstances. Case in point: once I was building a shed with my wife. My wife was my construction assistant, and we've always had this running joke between us where I goose her when she's not looking. Goosing, for anybody who doesn't know, is, of course, pinching someone's hind parts. This is not to be confused with Christmas goosing, which is sneaking up behind your cousin and pulling down his pants in public. Both are classic moves. So one day, my wife and I were building this shed, pounding nails with hammers, and all of a sudden, my wife gets very silent. She turns her back to me. I'm thinking maybe she's taking a break or catching her breath. But little do I know that she has just smacked her thumb with a hammer and is crying silently, grasping her swollen thumbnail, which is about the size of a grapefruit. And that's when I sneak up behind her unknowingly and goose her. What happened next would live in folklore for years to come, and it's still talked about in many circles. I will leave out the violent details involving how she injured me, and I'll simply warn you to tell you never goose a woman who holds a hammer. So we can see here that humor is not always funny. In fact, poorly timed jokes are the opposite of funny and are responsible for major blunt force traumatic injuries. And that's how things have felt during this epidemic. It has been difficult for me to find things to chuckle at when everybody's proverbial thumbs have been hit with a hammer. A few days ago, I sat down to write something lighthearted. I was going to write about Floridian yellow flies, which are always good for laugh. Anyone who's ever spent any time in West Florida knows that our yellow flies are big enough to qualify for Geico auto insurance. Well, no sooner had I written two paragraphs than I received a call from a friend. And my friend was telling me all the updates on Florida, uh, Florida's COVID-19 front, and my pal explained that for the last few days, Florida has been reporting record highs of coronavirus cases and it's only expected to get worse over the next few weeks. Then he told me that a mother of a mutual friend of ours had died. (laughs) Immediately, I felt horrible for trying to write something humorous about Florida, when so many people are getting sick. Thus, I abandoned my casual tone, and I changed the main thrust of that column. But by then, it was too late. I'd lost my source of inspiration altogether, and after a few hours of editing... I just tossed it in the trash. I guess what I'm saying here is I have no idea what I'm doing right now. Most days, I'm not even sure whether I'm fully awake. All I know is that this has been the weirdest, weirdest stretch of my life, and I don't think it's going to be easier over time. I think it's just going to get a little bit weirder. I wish there was something I could do. I really do. But I'm in the same boat everybody else was in. I have not changed out of my pajamas more than twice within the last 90 days. When the pandemic hit, my wife and I were doing this mini tour, doing my one-man show in different towns each night. When the tour was canceled, it only took a few minutes to start packing and head for home. And then our whole life went into suspension mode, just like everybody else's. It was so uncertain. I remember that car trip back to Florida. I was thinking to myself, okay, Sean, okay. This is going to be a tough time, but just stay cheerful, and maybe, just maybe, so you're right and you can help others feel cheerful, too. I gave myself this little pep talk, hoping it would help, but deep inside, I genuinely doubted whether or not my written words or podcasts could help anybody feel better. I mean, certainly. I attempt to make people feel better with words, and I attempt to crack jokes about small towns and yellow salad and dogs and about how Baptist's favorite whiskey brand is Vix NyQuil. But the truth is, I'm as human as the next guy, and these words you're reading are just pixels, or these words you're hearing are just audio waves coming through some sort of speaker. So I'm running out of time here, but before I end this little column, I want to apologize for letting you down, Ellen. Really, I do. I will do my best to stay lighthearted and cheer you up. The last thing I want to do is make you sad. I also hope that you can stay buoyant during this tough time and maybe even help your friends and family life. But take it from me. First, make absolutely sure they aren't holding a hammer. I'm holding a small pink rock, rose quartz. It usually sits on my desk just above my laptop. Sometimes when I can't think of anything to write, I hold this rock in my hand and I toss it up in the air a few times until either an idea comes to me or I give myself a black eye. I've been staring at this rock a lot during the quarantine. In fact, I spent a lot of time tossing this stupid rock in the air long time ago, I used to help drive the church community van. It wasn't my regular gig, but I was just a volunteer. The van carried maybe five elderly people around town, people who needed help running errands, and my friend Bobby was riding shotgun. Mostly, we just loaded and unloaded wheelchairs and walkers and took people to the post office and purchased their medications and carried them to the supermarket or assisted them with quote-unquote public bathroom ordeals. Uh, These elderly people mostly lived alone. And I believe the term the church used for them was shut-ins. So we spent the whole day driving them around. Whenever one of the little ladies would start complaining about low blood sugar, we'd stop by a drive through window. Oh, you should have seen our McDonald's fiascos. Trying to explain the finer points of a fast-food menu to older people with severe hearing problems was like trying to rewrite the Magna Carta with a white crown. You want supersized fries, Miss Caroline? One of us would ask. Huh? I don't know anyone who died. No, no, fries, Miss Caroline. Oh, I think he died 30 years ago. No, no, Miss Caroline. Fries, I said. Do you want fries? Miss Caroline would smile and say, I have to pee. And so it went. One day we stopped to, in an apartment to pick up an old man who I'm going to call Mr. Johnny. He was a recluse and uh, as friendly as a copperhead. The inside of his apartment was probably the most disgusting place on planet Earth. We rolled into his driveway to find him sitting on his swing and smoking a Winston. You're late, were his first words. Immediately, I could tell this guy was Mr. Personality. We went to the grocery store, and we pulled into the parking lot, and Bobby and I flipped a coin to see who would take Johnny Sunshine inside. And anyone who's familiar with Greek tragedies knows that I lost the coin toss. Mr. Johnny didn't want to admit that he couldn't walk on his own or that he was half blind, so we hobbled through the store, him steadily cussing, holding the cart for balance, and me. "'smiling at nearby shoppers every time he said a swear word "'and rolling the buggy forward. "'That's when he asked me if I played chess. "'Chess? "'I told him I don't know nothing about chess, "'so he asked me to visit his house sometime, "'and I was thinking to myself, "'visit your house. "'I would rather chew off my own leg. "'But the Baptist guilt inside me kicked in, "'and I went to his house.' When I arrived on his steps, there was no tough guy act. He wasn't even remotely the same grumpy man he'd been before in the store. In fact, he was pretty nice. We played chess, we talked, and when it was time for me to go, he begged me to stay for supper. He even offered to cook. I didn't know how to tell this kindly old man that I would have rather licked a boar hog between the ears than eat anything prepared in his tetanus-laden kitchen, so... I accepted his invitation. He cooked chicken. I did not believe his skillet had been washed since the Crimean War. That night over supper, he told me his whole life story. He buried it all. He said that he hated living alone with no family to speak of. And he even started crying. Then he asked me for advice on whether he should move into a nursing home. Oh well, my Lord, I felt way out of my league here and a little foolish. I mean, I was a baby compared to this elderly man, and I had no advice to give. I didn't know what to say, so I just kept quiet. And I'll never forget when he said to me, I'm so scared of being alone. Before I left that night, he gave me this little pink rock as a thank you gift. And we even embraced Later that evening, when I got back home, I vomited my brains out after contracting the worst case of food poison I have ever had in my life. I don't want to go into detail here, but it was atomic. That same month, Mr. Johnny moved into a nursing home. Several of us helped him move his furniture into his new room. We helped him settle in, and I even set up the hummingbird feeder outside his window. What a day that was. The nursing home staff gave him a little party with balloons, music, bingo, and everything. And I saw a hard-faced old man melt like a stick of Land O'Lakes butter. A few years later, he died. Some of us went to his funeral, and I expected it to be poorly attended since he'd been a recluse for so long, but I was wrong. There were lots of people in the congregation. Most were from the nursing home. Almost everyone had white hair, except for the young guy next to me who was dressed in medical scrubs. He was a nursing home employee, and he was bawling so hard that he had to excuse himself. Before he left, I noticed a little piece of pink rose quartz in his hand, a little rock just like mine. Wherever that old man is, I'm glad Mr. Johnny is not alone anymore. My wife and I are at a blueberry farm located in the middle of nowhere. My wife wears a sun hat and I am wearing a third degree sunburn. There are acres of blueberries stretching toward the tree line. Acres of them. The bushes are loaded with beautiful purple blueberries that are, and this is a well-known fact, explosively high in fiber. Now, blueberries are a big part of South Alabama life. My wife is from Bruton, Alabama, the blueberry capital of Alabama, and this is your quintessential small town with a cute main street, historic homes, and 1,228 nearby Baptist churches. Bruton is the kind of place that dedicates entire holidays to the humble blueberry. They have an Alabama blueberry festival, complete with a car show, arts and crafts, and music, and there used to be a beauty contest called Little Miss Blueberry that my wife had competed in once when she was a kid. And, of course, they had the Blueberry Drop. The Blueberry Drop is a New Year's Eve event where instead of dropping a big ball like they do in Times Square, they drop a giant blueberry behind church's chicken. When I first met my wife, we spent a lot of time picking blueberries. And one summer, a local farmer got several volunteers from our little church to pick blueberries for a three-day weekend. And I was the adult chaperone for our youth group Blueberry Squad. Now... Let me first say, the last thing anybody wants to do is chaperone a youth group for a weekend in rural Alabama. It's misery. When youth group kids reach a certain age, all they do is run around pinching each other's hind parts and smuggling in unfiltered camels. At night, and this is just true for the boys at least, they would sit around a campfire and hold scientific discussions about human anatomy using only slang words. I remember when the farmer warned the youth group that blueberries were very, very high in fiber, and not to eat too many of them. The boys ignored this, and they ate their weight in blueberries. And the next morning, these same boys spent a lot of private time in the woods having moments of deep spiritual reflection. (laughs) I was in my early 20s then. That seems like a lifetime ago. Anyway, today I'm picking blueberries like a maniac. I'm filling my bucket one berry at a time, and I'm almost feeling human again. For the past 90 days, I've been cooped up, quarantined, and social distance, and physical distancing, and losing my mind. Sometimes, I even think I've lost my inspiration. But standing in this countryside with my wife beside me, a breeze whipping around me, I feel like a person again. My wife says, Remember the last time we were here? And she's speaking with a mouthful of blueberries. As it happens, I do remember the last time. It was one summer day about 15 years ago. My wife and I were having a miserable year because we both lost our jobs. We were hemorrhaging money and didn't know where our next paycheck would come from. Then, as if things couldn't get any worse, Oh, it the same period the doctor found a lump in my wife's breast. It was on one random weekend that my wife suggested we forget about doctors and pick blueberries. And I thought this was a horrible idea, but I agreed. We did a lot of hand-holding that day, some crying, and a lot of eating. And it was good therapy. After picking blueberries for what seemed like a marathon we were on our way home and my wife declared that she wanted pizza pizza i was thinking my god we didn't have enough money to buy chiclets let alone dinner even so i looked at this woman in my passenger seat her bare feet on my dashboard and i marveled at how short life can be i wanted to tell her it was going to be okay But at the time, I didn't know whether I'd be lying. We pulled over to Pizza Hut. My wife ordered a pizza buffet for one person, and I ordered a tap water. When nobody was watching, we shared our pizza. This, of course, is expressly against the rules, but at least we said grace first. Before we left, I crammed 19 slices of pizza into my wife's purse and ran like hell. This is also against the rules. In the following weeks, my wife and I were sick with worry over what the doctor would say about her lump. But it was weird. Because also during that time, we had so many blueberries we didn't know what to do with. That's what happens when you go pick blueberries at a you-pick blueberry farm. We ate pies and cobblers and pancakes and muffins and blueberry ice cream until our kidneys were permanently purple. I'll never forget the morning when the doctor said my Wife's mass was benign. My wife and I cried for a full hour in that parking lot. And do you know what we did a few days after that? We drove to this little you-pick blueberry farm. I felt like I'd been reborn that day. I didn't care if I ever had a steady paycheck again. As long as I had my blueberry-picking, pizza-thieving partner beside me. Finally, I'm done picking blueberries for the day. And after several hours of filling buckets, I'm on my way back to my car. I pass a young couple in the parking area. They're wearing straw sun hats and carrying buckets. They're eating blueberries by the fistful. I overhear their conversation, and I can tell right off the bat they're newlyweds. And I can't help but wonder... If they know how surprising life will be. I wonder if they know how many curveballs this world will throw at them. I wonder if they know how beautiful they are. But above all, I wonder if they understand how truly high in fiber blueberries are.
1: Bye, bye.
0: was a lot of excitement in the admissions department yesterday morning. Oh, it was a big day. Big day. All the angels were getting their wings ruffled over a big-time celebrity who was checking in. Did you hear? said one angel to another. Today's the day. He's coming. Who's coming? He's coming. So the angel pulled out a logbook, and he pointed to the photograph of a small ten-year-old boy. The boy who'd spent his last days in the hospital in Durham, North Carolina. The boy whose family prayed until the bitter end. The boy who never, not even once, lost heart, not even in the face of his leukemia. All oh, the angels were pulling out all the stops for today's big party. The beautification committee was hanging streamers and a large banner over the abalone gates, which read, Welcome Home. The snack committee bought so much food they ran out of paper plates. The fireworks crew prepared for a huge display. The first spectators started arriving early. Among them were people like Elvis, George Washington Carver, William Franklin Graham, Lewis and Clark, Vincent Van Gogh, Samuel Langhorne Clemens, Leonardo da Vinci, and Babe Ruth. And there were many others who you've never heard of. You see... There's no rank of importance in this place. Everyone's the same up here. It's hard to explain this concept to earth people. Uh, For instance, one of the most important popular saints up here is an elderly man who used to be a janitor in a Soviet orphanage. You've never heard of him, but he's a pretty big deal. So everyone gathered at the gates. There was electricity in the air, and it wasn't just people but animals, zebras, lions, sheep, antelope, penguins, and squirrels. Oh, and the All-Star Band. Did I mention them? They were warming up. Vivaldi was playing fiddle, and Chopin was playing on keyboard. Miles Davis was warming up his flugelhorn, and Lawrence Welk had his 120-button bass accordion on his chest, and he was conducting. You could hear the rustle of wings. When the angels crowded the gates, they sounded like a bunch of excited chickens. Angels love new arrivals. The reception was going to be spectacular. All the souls who ever lived were attending. The crowd grew so big that no human number could ever describe it. See, on Earth, we measure things in millions and billions, but that's not how it works up here. Here, they have frickin jillion zillion 1000000000s But then this is the promised land. Everything's different here. There are rivers and streams that stretch to the edge of forever. There are countryscapes pretty enough to arrest your heart and make Earth look like a dump. To give you an example, they have a river up here that's as big as three solar systems. They have trees tall enough to outweigh the Chrysler building. You can eat fried chicken all day long and your LDL numbers never go up. There is no suffering, no arthritis, no lower back pain, no death, and no daytime television. By the afternoon, the gates were so slammed with crowds that it was standing room only. Everyone wanted to catch a glimpse of the arriving celebrity. There were children standing on the shoulders of adults, and angels were getting their autograph books ready. The band was playing a happy tune. And when the boss arrived, the crowds parted to make way. People are always amazed at how he looks up close, the boss. They usually expect someone older, someone who looks like Charlton Heston or Santa Claus, but the joke's on them. That's okay, because the boss loves a good joke, which is another uh, thing some people don't know about him. He's got a killer sense of humor. In fact, he invented humor. Also, he invented beer, but you didn't hear that from me. The Almighty stood before the throngs of people. He quieted everyone with a loud shh, because time was getting closer. A hush fell over the crowd. A lonesome figure in the distance appeared. It was a small child, walking toward the mother of Pearl Gates, through a shallow river of nimbus clouds. He was still wearing a hospital gown. If you looked carefully, you could actually see the boy's body getting stronger with each step. That's pretty common up here. This is a place where the elderly become young again, where the afflicted become spry. St. Pete greeted the kid first. The boy looked around, and he said, Where am I? Pete smiled the same kind of smile your granddaddy gives. He said, Where do you think you are, son? Is this place actually? Pete nodded. Oh, yeah. You better believe it. Then Pete showed the kid the guest register. He said, Sign here, date here, initial here. The boy had to stand on the stool just to sign his name. When he finished, he asked Pete what was supposed to happen next. Well, Pete simply winked and threw open the mother of pearl gates. The boy walked through the herculean entrance. He was a little cautious. New places can be scary. He took about two steps onto the gilded street, and all heaven broke loose banners, fireworks, brass bands, and cheering. Oh, the cheers. They started from the, first, the front of the congregation, and they trickled all the way to the back. It was a roar so loud that it made Yankee Stadium sound like a transistor radio with a dead battery. Soon the noise became so strong that the dome of the afterworld began rattling under the strain. The boss himself cut to the crowd. He placed both arms around the boy, And the cheering got even louder The boy asked Why are all these people here? And God said with a laugh Because this is heaven, son And you're a very big deal up here This lowly world won't be the same without you, Ray Slogans Rest in peace, son